Welcome to Gamer Noob. Today we're interviewing game designer Tom Knaus. I'm Caitlin. I'm Zach. And I'm Cody. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Tom. If you can tell us a little bit about yourself um, and why we're interviewing you, uh, oh. take it away. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm Tom Knaus. I'm a freelance game writer who predominantly writes for Frog God Games. Um, and I am here because we are going to be doing a Kickstarter very, very soon for a project that I wrote. It's called Tual, T-E-H-U-A-T-L. Um, it will consist of two books. The first book will be a system-neutral book. It is a guidebook to the island itself, so it's a gazetteer, as well as discussing the people, the, the um, religions, uh, the traditions, uh, and a general overview of this expansion to the Lost Science campaign setting. And the second book is an adventure book. It will consist of three adventures, one written by me, uh, one written by one of my friends, Rob Manning, who's done a lot of work for Wright Games, and uh, he's done some for Frog God as well. And the other is written by Tim Hitchcock. So if you're a big Paizo fan, uh, you should recognize him. He wrote a lot of the adventure paths for Paizo. So... Um, those should be going to Kickstarter shortly, and our search goals will add a few more adventures to that book if we make them. Yay! Oh, nice! Yeah. Yay! And we'll so also all y'all add... listening, go out and find their Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll also be adding a bestiary as well with art. So if we really nice. do well, we'll be adding that. And um, so we're really looking forward to this. It is a uh, Mesoamerican-inspired campaign setting. So we did yeah. a lot of research on this. Um, we did some amazing art. Um, I don't know if I can share you files with you guys, but I can show you the covers. Um, I so would love that. Yeah. And we can, really if we're allowed to post them uh, okay. on social media and stuff, we'd, we'd definitely do that. Yeah. We're yeah. all about cool art here. Yeah. So well, you actually said um, when Bill was talking, Bill Webb is our CEO, um, COO, and he was talking about this project. He actually said, and he said, I think this is the best art we've ever done on a Frog God Games project. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I think it speaks a lot, too, because we had a lot of artists from um, Central and South America who worked on this project. And oh, awesome. Yeah. For them, they were really, really into this because, you know, this was a chance to um, really celebrate some of their culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would I would write art notes to them and I would say you know the dress is like this and they go yeah yeah we know <laughs> we, uh, we 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 know we can figure that part out so I'm like all right we'll make sure you know. so, yeah tell me a bit more about the the process of research and input and that that give and take between all the people that were working on it with you I'm really curious about that especially in Mesoamerica is uh, such a different like place and aesthetic and culture and life uh, from me in suburban America. So can you tell me about that process of really diving into such a new and different culture? Um, it required a ton of reading and a ton of watching things and also bouncing things off of people. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of speaking to someone from you know, 16th century Tenochtitlan. They simply don't exist. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so I can't, you know, this is not like I was doing a modern project where I was doing um, a modern culture and I would contact somebody who lived in the area and says, now tell me, give me, give us, doing an interview like this and get more details. So without that luxury, we really have to rely upon, you know, uh, written sources um, and, you know, viewing some pro programs that were done on it. Um, there's not as much as you would imagine what was done on this, Particular topic, so we really had to uh, 
expand your horizons and to look into things and also bounce things off of, you know, this is still fictional. So we are, we didn't create a setting where right. you're going to be playing in 16th century Mexico. Uh, right. You know, we added certain dimensions to it. So we, one of the first conversations that Tim and I had when we were talking about this is, well, what do we do about this? And what do we do about that? And one of the things was, what do we do about steel? Uh, because in obviously Mesoamerica, there was no iron, there was no steel. Um, there was iron, right. but they were, you know, f- you know, forging it. So mm-hmm. you know, we kind of said, well, what do we do with that? And the idea was, well, you know what? It's still a fantasy setting. There's still other peoples on the island who have that technology. So I think we introduce it. But again, this is a very hot, humid climate where walking around in plate mail armor is probably not going to be very comfortable. Yeah, it's a bit different from European uh, sword and sorcery. Yeah. Right. And armor rusts. So, in an iron and steel rusts. So, in a um, Mm -hmm. setting where that would happen, you know, that was something that we took into consideration and said, you know, you can do it. Other things we went both ways with. Um, Well, one of the things we did was to take a natural progression. And the um, Mesoamericans had rubber. It's not the rubber we know today, but it was very similar to it. And we took the next step and figured that, well, over time, they vulcanized it. So we okay. added vulcanized rubber to the environment, but we didn't inv- and add other things like horses. We decided horses and beasts of burden was kind of like, eh, that was kind of like part of their um, the history there. And another misnomer that people have is that the Mesoamericans didn't know about the wheel. Um, that's, that's, that's incorrect. They did know about it. It simply wasn't practical for their environment because mm-hmm. I lived in a, in a swamp and a wetland. So <laughs> even if I had a horse to pull my wagon, my wagon was getting stuck. Right, yeah. The that it makes. So they relied predominantly on canoes and um, water to, for transportation purposes. So those are a lot of the ideas we had to bounce off at the beginning and see, say, what are we going to add and what are we going to keep that was true to the setting itself? Mm-hmm. Making it feel like Mesoamerica, but still have some of the elements that people are expecting from a fantasy setting and yeah right right one of the things too was also that um you know obviously we celebrated the the um indigenous people of the island in this particular product but it's still connected to the lost lands as a greater whole so if you really wanted to play a character that uh, originates in akados or originates in libanos and that's what you're familiar with you know you have that option to do that um you know you'll just be seeing the world in a different perspective because you know you're going to be more the outsider yeah environment than vice versa when you're doing these types of projects where you're kind of developing a world is that like a usual exercise for you is kind of like stepping back very early in the history then going like okay how do we imagine technology develops and why you know like like you were saying, like it, you know, water transport was very important versus the wheel, and they had rubber, but not this. Does that like inform a lot of how the setting looks and what kind of stuff you do with it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we wanted to again keep it true to the sources, but we also wanted to make those natural progressions, what seemed to make sense to us. Um, another avenue too was uh, it is an island, so we felt it was really necessary to introduce warships into. Um, into this particular setting because naturally if you're going to travel anywhere in an island over ocean you're going to need a larger vessel than a canoe you're not going to be able to go very far in a canoe traveling across the ocean we're going to need a bigger boat (laughs) we're going to need a bigger boat robert shaw yeah so um we felt that we needed a bigger boat 
So mm -hmm. we said, you know what, at this point, they've built bigger boats. So they have a formidable Navy as well as a land army um, on this island. So we thought the, we thought anything that existed, what made sense, we progressed into what didn't make sense or wouldn't fit in a fantasy world. We kind of said, eh, we'll keep that out for now. So Cody, talking about world building, Cody does a different podcast um, with a friend that's all about world building. And so they build a world like every week. Um, do you have any tips for people or like, I guess, uncommon things that you always be sure to add into your world building or is like that's part of your world building process that isn't maybe obvious to somebody who's just like sitting down like I'm going to build a world for my D&D &D campaign. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. If you could give me the edge on my co-host. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, building a world. I, I think the one thing important about building a world is to, is to have given an organic feel. Um, I don't like a world that seems very cookie cutter or it seems like it was just, well, we need this. So we have to introduce this element to the world. Um, I like a world that feels like it actually grew naturally. Like, one progression led to another instead of there was a sudden introduction of x y and z there was a sudden introduction of this there was a sudden introduction of that to me that this doesn't feel real um i like it where you can follow the timeline and you can see the events progress and the events as they progress make sense now obviously there are going to be serendipitous serendipitous discoveries and that sort of thing but um you know i i just wanted to feel like it progressed naturally. So technology develops slowly. It doesn't like immediately leap from, you know, we discovered the fire to the next thing you know, we're building firearms. You know, to me, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So it's really just slowing things down. I know we want to accelerate things because we live in a world where things accelerate so quickly. Um, like we yeah. were talking beforehand, um, when I was in college, there was a computer lab. The notion <laughs> of having a laptop. <laughs> was completely alien. If yeah. you wanted to do something on a computer, you had to go to a lab room, you had your floppy disk if you were lucky, and then you <laughs> stuck your floppy disk in there and you typed whatever it was. Sometimes you needed an appointment because the computer lab could get very busy at certain times. And, and you did that. And I think as modern people, we expect that. We think that things accelerate so quickly you know i remember an era before nobody had a cell phone i don't think i had a cell right, phone yeah. like 30 um or 25 or something like that so we have to fight that modern um uh, modern inclination to make things develop really quick and, yeah and make them take time things take time things move slowly uh and, and just apply that reasoning to creating a world. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a key thing that I think is very important. And that's something we wanted to do here. We didn't want to have things progress by leaps and bounds like super quick. We wanted things to make sense and have an ebb and flow uh, to how the world developed that, you know, people's rose and people fell, cities rose and cities fall. Something's there to take its place sometimes. Sometimes it's nothing there to take its place. Sometimes yeah. it's to chaos and ruin and waits for the next group of people to come along. So, um, you know, that's, that's my world building tip. Yeah, that's great. that's great. I love that. Yeah. I really like the idea of there being ruins in your world. You know what I mean? Like even there's a history setting, there, there's a history there, a past that you can kind of see and explore. Um, 
So something I was curious about, and I think you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, just in the conversation we were having. What what about this setting was exciting to you? Like why, like why this thing? You know what I mean? Because it it is kind of like it it is not the standard sword and sorcery thing. So like what what brought you to the setting that you're writing in right now? You know, I'm the kind of person who likes to do something different than what everyone else is doing. So that's part of me. Um, but you know, I, I grew up and. And I remember playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was very young. And uh, I remember introduced, being introduced to C1, which is the hidden shrine of Tomoachan. And while I know it's not, you know, quote unquote, true to history per se, I remember seeing the art and seeing the, you know, the culture and being like, yeah, that's really cool. And it came with an art book. I don't know if you're old enough like me to remember it. It actually had a flip book of art. Uh, the same with Tomb of Horrors did as well. So that was one of like the big selling points of it. So, you know, then you take a look at the deities in my God's book and they have the Central American mythos in it. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really fascinating. These stories are really incredible. So, you know, I started looking into it more. And the opportunity came for me at Frog God Games where, unlike most times where somebody tells you what we want you to do or you pitch something and somebody says yes or no, they came to me and said, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's cool. This is what I want to do. And they said, done. Mm -hmm. Go for it. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So uh, I with it and read a lot and learned. Uh, am I allowed to swear or no? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, okay all right. No, I, I learned a lot. I'll just say. I won't say. I, I, I learned a boatload of information about um, this civilization. And the more you learn, the more fascinated you became about you know, what they did and how they accomplished it. Um, one of the first civilizations on the planet to have compulsory education. So wow, yeah. You went to school from an early age, from probably around the age of six or seven. Um, they didn't have an alphabet. Um, they used pictographs. So, But you were told okay. to understand how they worked. Um, you were taught a various, you know, boys were taught warfare, but they were also taught um, mathematics. You can learn architecture, art. Um, you know, girls went to a different school that was more centered on maintaining the home. Uh, but, you know, it was just incredible, all, all the things that they had done. And, and it really, it's really tragic in a lot of ways that their civilization was, you know, overshadowed because it vanished so quickly uh, in the wake of, you know, of the, of the European conquest. So, you know, I just really wanted to have people have an appreciation for what these people did. And, you know, and it's just incredible that, you know, that it's, a, it's amazing when you realize how quickly they did vanish, that the civilization fell basically within two years. Wow. It's kind of mind-boggling how quickly yeah. it unraveled um, for a variety of reasons. And I'm not, not trying to give a history lesson and going into all of <laughs> No, that's you know, fine. It, like you're you're managing to make me very interested just in that detail. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm hoping for the after podcast where we get the history lesson now. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you guys history majors or? <laughs> no, no, engineering. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Caitlin and I are librarians though, so. Yeah. Oh, nice. Very nice. Very nice. Um, did, does that, uh, so we've seen some of your previous interviews and I remember you've mentioned that thing about education. Does that work its way into the, into the setting like that, that you wrote? Yes, it definitely does because the first adventure is actually set at a school. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. So it's, um, one of the schools was called the comic and sometimes my Noel is not the greatest in the world. Uh, it's called the Kalmaka, Kalmachok. Um, and that would be one of the schools that would be more for uh, 
usually there were schools for nobility and the commoners and this is kind of like in the in the middle of that so okay. we do discuss education a lot we discuss um, law now again it is fictional so we took inspiration from um aztec law and we made it our own in some ways um so they had something that was called the pedicali and the pedicali was the penitentiary Okay. So we created, or well, I created, kind <laughs> of like an Oz-like version of the penitentiary. So it's kind of set in the middle of this swamp. And the Aztec Pedicali was probably worse than being um, receiving capital punishment. It was just awful. I mean, wow. It, so we, we just kind of made it to the up to the notch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we thought, you know, that would be a cool... Uh, addition to it um so nice. yeah, it's amazing how things can get worse once you introduce magic into the setting like <laughs> this was bad now we can heal you and make it worse yeah. <laughs> right, we can keep you alive and one of the things we did too one of the things one of the other crazy ideas i have and i, I tell my wife these ideas sometimes she goes you're freaking nuts <laughs> i was gonna say um, it's really scary how quickly you and zach were both just like yes the implications of healing are nightmarish <laughs> <laughs> So there's one, of these, there's one of the parts of the setting where um, there's a location where all of these, I'm going to say monsters, so I don't give it away. All of these monsters gather together under certain days, and they have the essentially the equivalent of a human cook-off. So they do like a <laughs> contest, but they only take pieces of meat a little bit at a time. Oh, yeah. And cook them. So you see like part of your leg going into the frying pan. But you're still alive. Yeah, that's a new level of, of yeah, torture. Yeah. And they say and they save the organ meat for last because that's the tastiest they think. So uh, we did start this off saying if we should talk about what you've been cooking, and maybe we don't want to do that. Yeah, now I'm concerned. <laughs> I used to eat meatballs that I made this yesterday. So. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of meat was in those meatballs? Uh, it was the organic grass fed, so no players were harmed in the making of this no players film. were harmed in the making of this or characters to buy, or, well. yeah <laughs> that's good uh, you mentioned uh your the i i don't remember the name of the language but you mentioned um learning nawal. it a bit mm-hmm. no nawal 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 um how I am really into linguistics and language. Can you tell us more about how you incorporated that into the book and what it was like trying to recreate a 16th century language like that? Um, so we added a pronunciation guide in the book. So one of the that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that most people do is, and I, I'm guilty too. So uh, was when you saw the TL, most people go tuttle, and it's not tuttle. It's just like a old. It's like a little so, old, okay. Yeah, so when I when it's spelled when you see the book is spelled is named um, it's spelled T E H U A T L. People will normally go Tehuatl, and it's no. Yep, yep I did that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> because okay. the H U becomes a W, uh-huh. um, T L becomes like a longer L, so it becomes Tehuatl. Okay. Uh, so what we did for the book was um, we tried to use as many real Nawal words as we could in certain places. Um, the language can get very long in terms of words. So you can have a word <laughs> that be like 16 letters long. So for, you know, obviously our audience is predominantly English speaking. So, you know, we kind of made a decision early on that if we're going to make words or 
make proper names. Let's try and keep them as short possible. Like keep them, you know, still have the flavor of the language, but not mm -hmm. have it goes, you know, Lama locks illegal his own, you know, and you're going yeah. to, uh, they're going to be running the adventure and you run into Lama Tala. So, um, you know, we tried to keep them short to make it easier for our audience to um, be able to use them and pronounce them while still trying to stay authentic. A lot of the words in there too, there's no, there's no words obviously for certain things because, you know, we don't have a translation for them. So what we often would yeah. do is like take bits and clips of other words and mix them together and so mm -hmm. make them a little short and use them for that just to give the flavor and to immerse people into the language, you know, and, and as I've said in other interviews, you know, I don't expect people to, um, you know, pronounce words correctly. I still don't pronounce words correctly. And I've been reading this for a year and a half. So <laughs> Um, it's, we just want you know to you to have as much um, buy-in as you want. If you mm -hmm. want to have full buy-in and you want to pronounce it correctly and you know study the language, awesome. I am so me, pleased. If you don't and you're just like I'm really cool with this, but I, I'm, I'm really stumbling with the words. Well, I'm not going to come out of the book and smack you in the head for saying something wrong. So. Yeah, Cody appreciates that. Yeah, I was going to say, I really appreciate a pronunciation guide because I can't read any fantasy name because they're always goofy. So having an actual pronunciation guide and like backing behind the names, I'm like, great. There's like a <laughs> thing to learn here. Uh, I mean, you have it better than I do where I'll, Caitlin and I will read the same books and I'll be like, hmm, this is a difficult name. It's going to be the R guy because his name begins with an R. And Caitlin's like, how do you say this name, Zach? And I'm like, I, I just... <laughs> The I, R guy. It's the R yeah. guy. It does. Now, is that R guy is an R the letter R or yeah. O U R. He's our guy. Oh, <laughs> I mean, he could be. Okay. Okay. No, Zach gets really annoyed in uh, books if they have a bunch of like fantasy names that all start with the same letter. Then because then he can't tell them apart really easily. And I'm like, oh, it's so and so, obviously, and he's like. It just starts with an R, Caitlin. <laughs> they all start yeah. with R's. It's hard. Yeah. I read Lord of the Rings when I was like a teenager, and I I kept getting confused between Sauron and Saruman because they look so close. Yeah. Like, oh. Spoilers. Like, hey, is this the same person? I'm very confused. He's good. <laughs> it's exactly that. I'd be like, oh, the villain has a name of S, and then I'm like, oh, no, they're different. I have to pay more attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was like... That totally threw me off when I was a teenager. I was just like, ah. <laughs> at least you know they're connected somehow. Yeah, so at least and that, that would have worked, worked out. Actually, it kind of didn't work out because it made it more confusing. Because if they were obviously enemies, I would have paid more attention to and realized that they weren't the same person. But since they were both kind of on the same goal, that didn't really dawn on me until much later in the book. Oh right, yeah. I guess it, it kind of changes the tone of like you you think that they're they're combined entity is a lot more powerful than they are separately i guess mm -hmm. it might have seemed the whole the whole uh quest might have seemed more daunting with that reading <laughs> <laughs> truly insurmountable odds right exactly do you have a favorite part of this particular volume we've kind of gone over um a lot of the research that you did and some interesting tidbits do you have a favorite thing or like what do you think makes it stand out like, why should people be sure to pick up this specific one? Um, what's your, what's your favorite bit? 
Um, you know, I, I really think that the overview that we give is really um, very comprehensive and really does a good job of presenting this location and it's tying all the ends together, tying all the people together, tying their religion together, tying um, uh, their traditions together. You know, we go into law, we explain property law, and, and again, I'm I'm a quasi-lawyer, I guess the way I call it. <laughs> Um, you know, we explain it, but not, you know, to boring details. You know, we just explain mm -hmm. how it works. We explain how religion ties into people's lives. Um, you know, we explain um, how people got around, how technology developed, uh, you know, how the, the, the people evolved from, you know, because this, this island has a lengthy history as we go into in the book. And... It change, the people change a lot from 10,000 years when this kind of starts to the present. They go through several different metamorphoses. You know, there's a rebellion, there's an uprising. Uh, that changes fundamentally the way the island develops. And it changed from a political, a religious, and a social standpoint. And we go into how it changed it. And I think, you know, the devil is in the details a lot of the times. And I think yeah. You're going to be able to immerse yourself in those details. You know, it still gives you a broad overview, but, you know, the deep dive lets you really, you know, get a good sense of what this whole thing is really about and uh, lets you really immerse yourself in it. Yeah, well, yeah. When you're running a game, I think that kind of information is either invaluable or made up haphazardly on the spot, you know, mm -hmm. where, like, you know, inevitably you have to know some weird social cust, you know, like something obscure that your party decides to wander into. And you're like, I don't know how any normal person would respond to what you guys are doing right now. So like having something codified can be definitely beneficial. Yeah. Know? Like when the players decide, you know, we really need a lawyer to sort this out. <laughs> kind of happens sometimes. Yeah. I feel like yeah. it's not infrequent that your general campaigning party ends up breaking some laws. Yeah, right. I mean that too. Right. right, we explain how the judicial system works. So there's actual different judicial system for a noble and a commoner, but we also explain how people become noblemen and how people become commoners. And one of the things that we put in there was that um, the gods in this world weren't gods at one time. They were ordinary people who rose up, led this rebellion. Um, you know, they ultimately succeed, but in the process, they're then elevated to godhood status. And one of the classes of nobility are the people who were either their descendants while they were mortal or relatives. Um, and that's one of the ways that people attained nobility as well as through, in a very martial culture, um, you know, demonstrating your courage on the battlefield or doing something else in another field that, you know, merits uh, celebrated status. You were a great artist. You were the architect who built that vast pyramid um, you were a mathematician who devised uh, a formula for how to plant crops better or something like that. So, you know, we do go into those details and explain the judicial system, how it works, how an actual trial would work. We don't go in again. And it's not like 30 pages of trial material. It's like, you know, a paragraph explaining how it would work and what a proper yeah. trial would you know, entail and how a crime would be investigated and who would investigate it and that sort of thing. Yeah. Enough detail you could do it, but not in enough detail to bore you to tears. So Yeah. I seem to remember in one of our D D campaigns that Zach ran that we went to a courthouse to steal something. And so of course he had to come up with 
all these courthouse details. <laughs> so I'm glad that you provide those things for, you know, us it's, players who go to a courthouse. Yes. <laughs> It's very useful for when, as a DM, I have never been to a courthouse. And they're like, well, what does a floor look like? Can I break through it? I'm like, I don't know what courthouses look like <laughs> in real life, let alone when you have magic involved. Right, right yeah. Uh, we've touched on art a little bit. I think Cody had some questions. Yeah, I was yeah. like waiting to ask about art, but I'm also mm -hmm. like, so I, I think this might be maybe more common for like, the generation of people that are like downloading books and no longer buying hard copy or like, I just want like a cheat sheet of like mm -hmm. bullet points that are the RPG system. But like when I first got into it, right, I had like second edition D and D books and looking through them was fun because they were like amazing to look at. They had fun artwork in them and stuff. So I just wanted to ask like how just in general for the you know the hobby of playing role-playing games like where do you see art fitting into that and like how important is it oh cool you sent us some art for this yay did <laughs> i'm gonna send you more i you know art is critical um what is the first you know what's the old saying you judge a book don't judge a book by its cover well how many people go in the store and they look at a book and they pick it up and what exactly do they do they judge the book by its cover gotta see the so, cover yep Right. If they see the cover and they like it and they think it's really cool, um, you know, they're going to take a second look. If they take a look at the cover and they just go, oh, that's awful. This is amateurish. I don't like it. Yada, yada, yada. They're going to put it down. I mean, I, I work a booth at a convention. Um, I've been doing this booths or conventions for years. And the first thing everyone does when they walk in, take a look at the cover. If it intrigues them, they open it up. If they open it up, they start flipping through it. If they see the art or something that they're obviously they're not speed reading in the book. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're reading the contents. Oh my God. They're looking to flip through the art and to see what the art looks like. If they like it, the next thing they do is flip it over, look at the price, and put it down. But no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why you kickstart. <laughs> right, that's why you kickstart. No. Um, so I mean, art really draws people in, and it's it's just so critical because it's eye catching. Here's here's a choice. I can buy a book in full color with this amazing art. Um, and again, I'm at a convention, so I don't have time to read the book, or you know, if I'm not familiar with it, I didn't get a review. I could buy a color book for fifty bucks that has incredible art. I could buy a black and white book for 40 bucks that looks like somebody drew it with uh, a stick figure. Which am I yeah. going to pick? I'm going to pick the one with the nice art because yeah. art get our attention. So it's really, I, I think art is a, is a huge driving factor in an RPG book. If you have an RPG book that has, at best, mediocre art, um, you're going to struggle because it's just, it's the eye test and people like to look at it and see it and it makes such a difference. I'm loving the art that you're sending us right now. Yeah, I was oh, gonna okay. say the last one of someone magically throwing a piece of corn looks pretty cool actually. Right. <laughs> well, <that's laughs> likes, we call her Maze Lady. Everybody likes Maze Lady. <laughs> she's she's like, awesome, oh, yeah. Super cool. I'm like, yeah, she's cool. <laughs> that leads into a question I have though. Like, how is magic different I, I don't know if that's the right thing but like how is it unique from like the other regions in your setting in this new area um we added a bunch of new well um I don't, for system for five beam pathfinder and sorts of we added a whole bunch of new spells um we added new equipment that is both magical and non-magical 
um, we added new class options uh, for both systems. So the magic system obviously still works within the uh, overall system, your engine, whether it's Pathfinder or 5e. We wanted to give the items and the spells a very unique flavor, unique to this location. So you're going to find, um, you know, weapons that would be here. One of the weapons was, uh, and again, I'm probably going to butcher it, Makwail, because it's very hard to pronounce. And what it is, it's a wooden club um, that's kind of flat, and it has obsidian blades that run along the edge. Um, ridiculously sharp, but also kind of brittle, because if you hit something really hard with the, with the obsidian, it's going to chip. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we added items like that into there. We also added things that were related to the gods, or we added things that were kind of mundane items and gave them magical properties. So, you know, pumpkin seeds. There's actually a magic item called pumpkin seeds because pumpkins nice. needed here in the new world. They weren't in the old world. Um, chili peppers. So we introduced there's a chili pepper, like a chili, like a almost like a pepper spray made out of chili <laughs> so, That would be Cody's weapon of choice. <laughs> um, you know, so those are the kind of things. So we didn't change the magic system. It's still, you know, Pathfinder 5e. It's just got a Tawa flavor to it. Okay, that makes sense because I mean, reinventing the magic system would be difficult and make things less accessible in a lot of ways. If you're like, well, you can be a wizard from here, but you need to learn a whole new rule set and everything is completely different. That's a totally different book. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, is D and D five your favorite system to add to? Um, do you have a different favorite system to run or play? I like writing items for 5e and, and Pathfinder. There, there's different challenges with both. Um, Pathfinder and 5e have different language and different terminology. So you have to be very careful to use the proper terminology. You have to be switching all the time if you're writing you for switching. both. It's yeah. like a universal translator, right? You have to switch because certain terms are used in Pathfinder that are not used in 5e. And 5e uses certain terms. That are, I think 5e gives you, um, uh, allows you to be a little more free flowing with your design than Pathfinder does because Pathfinder is a little more, uh, how can I say it, regimented in how you create things. You know, there's a formula to figure out how much this item is worth and mm. how much it costs to make it and what spells go in to make it and kind of what it does. And in 5e, it's just kind of like I can assign a value to it based upon. You know, comparing it to existing items and putting it into that that cat broad category instead of calculating down to the nano gold piece how much this costs. yeah so, so yeah that's kind of the that's the big advantage. Um, you know, plus Pathfinder has you know so much material out there uh, for it that it's kind of hard to break a lot of new ground. Whereas Five E doesn't have as much. It's, it's got a plenty, but not as much. So yeah. I was actually curious about that. Is is there like a market share issue if like, oh, I want to write a module for some other system and it's like, well, percentage wise, 5% of the RPG, you know, RPG playing population plays this one system. So like, is, is that like a problem of, but then you brought up, is it also like a saturation thing that certain systems it's hard to get into just because there's so much? Yeah. We write, we, we produce materials for three different systems, um, 5e, Pathfinder, and Swords and Wizardry, which is our own first E retro clone. Now, for a while, when Pathfinder 2 got announced, we stopped doing Pathfinder because the Pathfinder sales just went, 
and they just did a complete nosedive. Um, there's been a bit of a bounce back um, after two after Pathfinder 2 came out. So we are starting to do it. Um, but a lot of what we do or what system you produce something for is based on market share. So 5e is still um, the king. It still accounts for over 50% of our sales. I think probably, I would say probably 60 to 70. Again, I don't have full access to the sales numbers. That's just what I, I've heard. Um, Pathfinder though, and Swords and Wizardry have a very loyal following for us. And um, many of our Pathfinder and Swords and Wizardry players are also collectors. And they like to collect um, special edition books. They like to collect uh, maps. They like to have the complete kit and caboodle. So when they come to a Kickstarter, they're not just buying the main book and the adventure book. They're going to be buying all the supplements, all the add-ons, all the special edition versions, all the map, all everything. So in mm -hmm. terms of numbers-wise, they're smaller. In terms of dollars-wise, it, it, it brings them more in line with the 5e um, audience for us. Do you like playing in 5e the best or Pathfinder? Or do you, when you're just like relaxing and playing, do you have a favorite system? Um, I like Pathfinder up until a certain level. And then I find it becomes <laughs> a little unwieldy. And yeah, just too many numbers and bonuses and Pathfinder uh, from like third to fifth level is is nice. It's sweet, works well. You can have your modularity, but it's not over the top. Um, once you start hitting like sixth or sixth to eighth, it's still okay, but it's getting a little clunky. You can hear the car, you know, I can hear <laughs> the tire starting to unravel. Right. And then later on, it kind of comes undone and you're on the side of a road with a tire jack trying to change the tire. Um, <laughs> you know, 5e doesn't have the modularity that Pathfinder has, um, but it doesn't have the exponential power curve that Pathfinder has. So in terms of playing it, I, I like it for its simplicity, but you do miss some of the deep details you can do or the customization you can do with Pathfinder. So I would say for simplicity, you want to sit down and play a game 5e. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely noticed that when, like, like I said, I started out in second edition because, like, I mean, I worked at a Jimmy John's and a kind of stonery guy that I worked with was like, hey, man, you want some D&D &D books? And I've never given those back to him. Um, <laughs> so I kind of accidentally stole those from him. Um, but then, yeah, as I went through, I like got stuck in Pathfinder for a long time. And like for me, and this is like terrible, it's like, well, you know, you can get the books for free. It's great, you know, and there's a lot of support material. Um, and then I played five, fifth edition and I'm like, yeah, I don't actually, I'm not good at this numbers game. <laughs> I thought I was. Did he give you those second edition books in the back alley anywhere? Or was it like actually in the store? Buddy, come here. I got, here. <laughs> I got second edition books for you. Um, I got second edition books. <laughs> uh. But I yeah, we I, we started oh, and we started in Pathfinder. I think when we all first started playing and like didn't really know each other, and then eventually we switched to D and D five e, and I am I am also happier. <laughs> I mean, it also helps when you know Cody isn't giving weapons that crit on a sixteen up. <laughs> See, this is the problem that I had with Pathfinder is, is I broke Pathfinder <laughs> by going like I'm gonna create a custom item and did not think about the implications. Of oh, okay. So you gave something that critted on sixteen to twenty. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's a, it's a 10 to 20. Yeah, everything is a crit. Oh, my God. 
It's a four. It's a it's a it's a war pick, so it does four times crit damage. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically this is what the type happened. of this is the type of number game that I never even considered getting into, and then yeah. You hand it to someone else, and they're like, "Oh." <laughs> well, it was bad because, like, at that time, we didn't have separate campaigns we were doing. So Cody and I would switch off. So Cody's like, "End of end of his arc." He's like, "Here's a weapon that crits on 16s. and then it's like, "Okay, Zach, your turn. Deal with this weapon." And I'm like, "Oh no, deal with this weapon that crits." <laughs> oh on no. So someone's going around hitting, yeah. critting every attack, and I'm like, "I can't do anything with any enemies now." And Cody's like, "I don't see a problem." <laughs> yeah. Somehow we're still friends. <laughs> that, that's we're the one thing you, you do when you're designing um, when you're designing magic items. You're designing certain things. Is you always want to take a look at it and see how I, how can I break this? How can I make it like you know just make the whole game unravel? And, and you got to really be careful about doing that. If, if my opinion is, if I'm going to mess up, I'd rather mess up on the side of nerfing something than overpowering it. Yeah, well, and I can understand that if you're if you're like designing for stability, and this is like a, like you know, if you're homebrewing something, you can kind of change it on the fly. But if it's written in the book, your player, you know, that's that's it's what your printed. players are gonna say, you know. Right. Yeah. It says in the book, it says in the book, I could do that. Why not? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to thrust anybody in that position where they have to do that. So right. I, I try yeah. and do a really. Again, I'm not perfect, so there could be things that slip through. Um, but I, you know, I don't consciously go there and say, "Well, every if." And then my other second um, fallback is, would every character want this? Because if every character would want this, it's probably too powerful. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think that's most of what I have for me. Do we have like a final question that we want to do before wrapping up? And I enjoyed I talking with you. Oh, it was <laughs> fun with you guys. It was fun. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've done so many of these, but uh, it is, it's, it's an interesting dynamic when there's more than one person, because when it's one person, it's more, it, it's, it's just different. It's a different dynamic. It, it's more, it introduces more ideas when you have more people. When you have one person, it's just very kind of like scripted and mm -hmm. it's even more uh, ad lib improv. So Organic, you might say, like the world <laughs> building. <laughs> yeah, like the meat, I use in my meatballs, not an adventurer. Character. Right, yeah. <laughs> You keep kind of trailing off when you talk about what are what are what are in these meatballs, and I'm wondering if it's Discord or. <laughs> no, no. Also, um, if you want to promote, we're doing a Frog God Game Day on Discord. So if you guys are Discorders uh, and you want to check out our game day, by all means. Oh yeah. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. If you want to send us that, when is that going to be? Uh, September 12th to the 13th, I believe. Perfect. Okay, you should send us that link, and we'll be sure to post about it when we when we post this interview. Okay, cool. Yeah, I will do that. Well, yeah, so any final time. final plug just so that everybody has all of the info for your Kickstarter and yeah, um, absolutely. can chomp at the bit to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, so to all, we're hoping it's coming out this week. Uh, it's supposed to come out very soon. Um, Kickstarter's dragging their feet a little bit, but um, you know, stop by Frog God Games. Um, Frog God also has a presence on Facebook. Uh, that's probably our best source of information. So just search Frog God Games and like our page. Um, you can also follow me personally. I'm Tom Knaus. Uh, you know, I'll have a little Nandor with a little pink uh, <laughs> profile picture. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> so you can follow me there. Um, we also do uh, post on Instagram. So I don't think we have a big Twitter presence, and I definitely don't have a Twitter account. So um, those are the places you can find us on socials. You can also check us out at Discord. We have a very large Discord server. 
Um, we're also there. And of course, broadgodgames.com is, is another place, but that's mostly our web store. We're, there's not gonna be too much information on there other than buying the products. So the main source is probably Facebook and Discord to uh, keep in touch with everything we're doing. And you know, I, I go on Discord a good amount to keep in touch with the fans and you know plug products and do that sort of thing. So support Tuwal, support Adventures in Tuwal, and it's been great. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been fantastic to have you. Thanks, it was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gamer Noob. You can find links for Tom Knaus, Frog God Games, all artwork we discussed on this show, and social media links for the Wandering Gamer Network in the description. Until next time, Wanderers. Wanderers.